0: Cooking the Books is a proud member of the Barelas Podcast Guild. Welcome to Cooking the Books. I'm Vanessa, your host, and I'm glad you're here. Welcome back to Season 2 of the Cooking the Books podcast. It's been a minute since we chatted, hasn't it? I hope you're all still staying well, getting vaccinated, and enjoying doing a few more things than we could do at this time last year. Cooking the books took a couple of months off so that I could focus on getting a few more things done at my new house. Plus, ta-da, I got a new dog, and he's just wonderful. I think I'm in love. If you want to see pictures of how cute he is, go check out my Instagram feed. The link is in the show notes. Also, oh yeah, almost forgot. I started working back in my office again a few days a week, which totally sucks ass, but what can you do? And I am fortunate to at least be able to work from home a couple of days a week, so that most definitely helps. So anyway, moving onward. Today's episode is a fun one, talking about a book and its film adaptation, or should I say adaptations, that are considered American classics, masterpieces, or any of those analogies. It's a book that essentially created the modern-day concept of the Italian mafioso, and the film version cemented the idea of what it means to be a mobster in our collective conscience. Yes, boys and girls, I'm talking about The Godfather.
1: I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse.
0: So The Godfather, both the book and the epic trilogy of films spawned by the novel, tells the story of one Italian crime family and its ascent to the heights of power and its subsequent descent in terms of its humanity. The book starts with the wedding of Don Vito Corleone's only daughter, Connie, or Constanza, and progresses to tell the story of him and his three sons, Sonny, Fredo, and Michael, and how Michael eventually turns from the quote-unquote good son into the ultimate mafia crime lord. Now, don't get me started on the topic of books versus films, because I will bore you to tears as I wax philosophical on whether the film version is better than the book, Because I will wax poetic for a good hour or two about the merits of the book and how the book is always better than the film. I think that the only examples of the film adaptation being equal to or even better than the book would have to be the Lord of the Rings film trilogy by Peter Jackson and, of course, the Godfather trilogy. And yes, I include The Godfather 3 in that because I happen to love that film and I believe it is very underrated. But we'll get to that later in the episode. So, I've seen the film The Godfather, of course, like 30 times, possibly more. I own the trilogy on Blu ray, DVD, for God's sake. I can quote the movie nearly line by line, another reason not to watch movies with me because I will irritate the shit out of you by doing that. And I will gladly debate the merits of that much maligned third film because I personally think it has many hidden gems with it. Just try to ignore Sofia Coppola's performance and give her a break. She was young. And there are worse actresses in the world. And besides, think of it this way. If she had been a better actress, she wouldn't have gone on to her rock star film director career, and we wouldn't have the kick ass films such as Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, and The Virgin Suicide. Film gems, all of them, if you have not seen them. So back to the overall storyline. The Corleone patriarch, Vito, runs a crime syndicate in the 1950s in New York, actually, New York City, New York State. He has his three sons, as we had already talked about, Santino, or called Sonny, Federico, also called Fredo, Michael, and a daughter, Constanza. All these children are very different, and Sonny is expected to take over the family business. But when he is executed mafia style, and when Don Vito Corleone has an attempt made on his life, Michael takes over and becomes the Don, and becomes far more cold and ruthless than his father ever could be.
1: My father taught me many things here. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer.
0: Something else that stood out to me about this book was the narration of it. I was very surprised at how very cold and very clinical and removed the book actually is, which is a strange dichotomy because it's talking about a family who itself is very passionate. They are passionate about the things that they love. They're passionate about the things that they hate. They're an overall just passionate family. And you can see that in their relationships with one another. You can see it in the scenes of violence and murder, etc. And for me anyway, reading this book from that emotional remove makes them even more powerful. I was also surprised at how Michael's Sicilian wife, Apollonia was portrayed. In the film, she has very much a personality very flirtatious and passionate and quite funny actually. In the book, she really isn't given much character at all beyond being this gorgeous sexual creature that Michael falls passionately in love with and must possess until she is, of course, killed by the car explosion meant for him. Another theme that stood out to me, both when reading the book and watching the film, were the strong religious components that inform nearly every scene. And here to talk more about that is today's special guest, And with that in mind, I'm here to introduce the guest on my podcast, Dr. Eddie Tafoya. You might recognize Dr. Tafoya's voice when he lent his vocal talents to some previous podcasts I did before. Today, I'm actually going to interview him. He is a professor of English and a self-proclaimed godfather expert. In fact, he claims that he's seen it more times than me, which I think is bullshit. But anyway, Eddie, welcome to Cooking the Books.
2: It's good to be here.
0: Good to have you here. Thank you so much. Thanks for agreeing to talk about one of my very favorite movies in the entire world, and I know yours as well. But let's talk a little bit about the book first. Sure. All right, cool. Have you You've read the book, right? I have. Okay. So I remember you talking about the book at one point and saying that you didn't think it was very good
2: literature. No, it's not a, It's not well written.
0: Okay. Why do you say that?
2: Uh, because he relies on a lot of cliches. The punctuation is bad. Punctuation is important to me. I know. <laughs> and I think the characters are a little bit um, thin, shall we say.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. One thing that I did notice, I don't think it's a bad book. I don't think it's you know great literature, but I don't think it's terrible. Uh, is that? I thought it was interesting the way it was written. It was really, it was very detached. I thought the the literary style. It was just very kind of, I don't know, clinical. Yeah, as a, matter of fact. Yeah, yeah, and which I thought was an interesting choice for uh, Mario Puzo to make because he's describing a family of people who, and I don't want to be a be cliche, but you know, they're obviously a family of intense passions, whether it's for you know, women or affairs or food or killing their enemies you know they are obviously a family of, of great passion and i just thought it was a very interesting literary device that it the book was written in such a way that it it kind of keeps a distance
2: yes tell you the truth i've read mario some of mario Puzo's uh, other books and i don't know if he could bring you that bring that kind of narrative intimacy
0: yeah yeah his just overall style is pretty uh pretty clinical and like you said matter of fact um one of the things you and i were talking about before we started recording was the sort of cliches in the names of uh vito corleone's children because i mean for those of you out in you know podcast world who have been living under a rock for 40 years and don't know the storyline of the godfather it's basically the story of the corleone crime family and the first movie and the book are mainly about Don Vito Corleone, who is the head of the family. And it's, in a way, it's sort of like a, what would you call it? It's sort of the opposite of a Bildungsroman. Instead of it, instead of it being a coming-of-age story for his youngest son, it's sort of the story about how his son becomes, in a way, corrupted, right?
2: I would say it's not kind of like that. let would say that's exactly what it is. Okay, well, thank but you. But it's also the story of America becoming corrupted after World War II. Let's talk a little bit more about that. Well, the big deal with the Corleone crime family before World War II is the unions, liquor, and prostitution. Yeah. And that's comparatively innocent to what has happened to America since then, especially with narcotics. And if you look at the toll narcotics has taken on this country economically, culturally, in terms of human lives, in terms of human lives lost, in terms of human lives ruined. uh, The whole story is about them getting into narcotics.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Sonny even says there's a lot of money in that white powder. Yeah. Well, Michael is innocent. He goes to World War II, Mm -hmm. and he comes back, and he takes over this narcotics empire. Mm -hmm. This is the corruption of America.
0: It's an interesting symbolism. I had never really thought about it like that, but you're absolutely right. In fact, um, so I want us to talk about the book, but also the three films. And I know you don't have any great love for the Godfather part three. I'm gonna talk you into it. I'm gonna convince you otherwise, but there's a line- I'm (laughs)
2: open-minded if nothing else.
0: (laughs) There's a line in the Godfather part three. I forget which character says it, but um, one of them says, you know, your enemies get rich on what you leave behind. And I I don't know if you remember in Godfather Part Three, but, you know, the Corleone's had left a lot of the narcotics behind and this other guy had taken over and became very wealthy and was the Corleone's enemy. We'll get into that more, but that what you were saying now just reminded me of of that line. So I thought that was interesting. The other predominant theme that I noticed, you know, very strongly in both the book and then in the movies was this theme of religion.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: I mean, they're obviously a very Catholic family and... In the movie in particular the the scenes of uh you know like you know the catholic church rituals and and all the things that you know you and i both grew up with i thought those were used to really great effect just kind of when they're juxtaposed with like the baptism scene toward the end of the first movie right. is a really good example because that's juxtaposed with michael putting out this huge hit on all of these enemies of his and I thought that was really, really fascinating, you know, a way to, to do it because it really does show the, the corruption at his heart, you know, he's, he goes through the the motions of, you know, this Catholic, this Catholic ceremony, you know, that you're supposed to do, it's sort of purification of, a, of an innocent soul. Right. And, and it shows, sorry, go ahead.
2: Well, the, the inner splicing is so powerful mm-hmm. because just as the priest says, do you renounce Satan and all his works, which is part of the baptismal ritual? Michael says, I do. And then it cuts to Tataglia being blown away.
0: Yes, I remember. I remember that. <laughs> that was, that's a great, I mean, it's the movie's full of great, wonderful scenes. That's, that's definitely one of them. So the other thing that I noticed, and, and it goes back to what you were talking about in terms of the book, is that the characters were kind of flat. And I thought that was interesting because I'm, thinking now specifically of the character of Apollonia, Michael's wife, um, when he when he meets when he goes to Sicily when he's in hiding. And it's funny because it's sort of the opposite with her. In the book, her character is actually a lot more well-defined, for lack right. of a better way to, to put is. it. And in the movie, I thought it was interesting that she, she really was just very one-dimensional. Yeah, I mean, she she's was, a
2: shadow in the movie. That's yeah.
0: true. What did you think about her character?
2: I thought that in the movie, in the movie, I thought her character was, uh, I thought she was somewhat interesting because she's clearly this child. Mm-hmm. You know, she's clearly this child. And I guess she doesn't get corrupted, but she experiences love, mm-hmm. a fairy tale kind of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the scene, for me, the most romantic scene in any movie I've ever seen, is that scene in Sicily when Michael and his bodyguards are coming down the road and they step over this low wall and they lock eyes and Michael locks eyes on Apollonia.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And the bodyguard says, Fabrizio says, be careful in Italy, women are more dangerous than shotguns. <laughs> well,
0: you could say that about, you know, any place, any time. Certainly in, in Durannis
2: where I grew up. <laughs> okay but what i'm getting at here is what makes that so romantic is he is the son of the godfather Yes. and she her name is apollonia and fabrizio says she looks more greek than italian she has a purple or purple ribbon in her hair and she he says that michael struck when he looked at mike when michael looked at apollonia Michael got struck by a thunderbolt. Mm-hmm. Well, Apollonia is the female version of Apollo. Apollo,
0: in Greek mythology.
2: And Apollo is the son of Zeus.
0: Yes,
1: and Zeus, the father god. Yes,
2: and Zeus flung thunderbolts. Yes. So there's this whole mythological dimension to that love story. Yeah, it's it's truly beautiful.
0: And it's an interesting, uh, like you were saying, it's an interesting juxtaposition of you know, uh, the Catholic church, you know, the, the, you know, Judeo Christian, Western civilization, religion that all of, you know, too many of us grew up with against this ancient Greek religion and civilization. It's an interesting coming together of the two,
2: right? Well, the two, the two, there's lots of cross pollination. Yes. I, I guess the Catholic church didn't, didn't, didn't inform the Greek myths very much, but the Greek myths influenced the Catholic church. Most
0: certainly they did. Most certainly they did. Uh, you could say that about the Catholic Church in a lot of uh, different aspects of it. Yes. <laughs> so another thing that I remember you and I talking about at one point is the just the overall religious symbolism in the book and in the movie in particular. Uh, we would been we'd been talking about that last scene from The Godfather, but you had mentioned an interesting scene which I had never noticed. So I, I guess I do have to give you kudos for you know knowing a little bit more about The Godfather than I do when we were talking about the scene where uh, Michael is talking to Vito. And you were comparing their body language to uh, somebody who's in the confessional talking to a priest.
2: Yes, um, but actually, that's a running theme for the movie. Okay. The movie deals with the Catholic sacraments, and usually, uh, the sacraments in the Catholic Church are meant to are meant to chronicle your growth, your spiritual growth. Sure. You get baptized, you're born, you get confirmed, and it all leads up to extreme unction, which we now call anointing of the sick. But it's it's your growth as, you're pro- as you progress through life.
0: Your spiritual growth.
2: Yes, what we see happening with Michael is he's going the other direction. Yep, he's exactly. going through the spiritual deterioration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this begins when he is in the hospital with, with Vito
1: mm-hmm.
2: and he holds Vito's hand and he says, "I'm with you now, Pop. I'm with you now." And Vito is crying.
1: Yeah.
2: Well, that tear is water. Water is baptism. That's his baptismal. And then he goes out into the into the street, well, in front of the hospital. And Sergeant McCluskey uh, punches, uh, ends up punching him, breaking his jaw. I remember. And <laughs> the classically the the ritual of confirmation involves a child being held up to the Archbishop and the Archbishop slaps him. And this is so McCluskey slapping, or uh, punching Michael is his confirmation. OK, then Michael gets married, another sacrament. And then um, th- there's that wonderful scene where where Vito is handing over the reins of the mm-hmm. empire. And Mike is holding his chin. And their two their two faces are both in profile, but looking at each other. And Vito starts basically confessing mm-hmm. how he has failed. Well, what is a sin? A sin is a failure, a moral failure, usually. In this case, in this <laughs> case, <it>?
1: definitely not.
2: <laughs> and he says, "I never wanted this for you, Michael. I always wanted." I always wanted you to be Senator Corleone, Governor Corleone, and then Michael in another peso Novante. Uh, but there just wasn't enough time, just wasn't enough time. So he is telling his sins to Michael.
0: Yeah. I thought that was interesting because I had never noticed that particular uh, symbolism, but it, it makes a lot of sense now that you mention it. And if you, I mean, you know, even the movie itself, I mean, it starts with the sacrament of marriage. You know, they have the sacrament of, of the last rites in the middle of it, you know, when Sonny is killed and dies and even when Vito dies. And then at the end, there's the sacrament of baptism. So it, I thought the very interesting kind of trajectory of of those Catholic sacraments that you were talking about.
2: Well, even even in the climactic baptismal scene, you have last rite symbolism because, uh, for instance, Mo Green is getting massaged. So they're rubbing oil on him. He's getting oil rubbed yes. all over him. And then uh, when Al Neri is getting ready to is getting ready to go perform his hit mm-hmm. he empties this bag that has his old his old uh, policeman's badge in it and he picks up a cloth and he wipes his head. That's that anointing mm-hmm. man Clemenza has an anointing. Everybody mm-hmm. who, who does a hit in that in that scene anoints himself somehow
0: yeah. It's almost like they're they're looking to get that blessing from God. Right. I thought that was very fascinating. Yeah. Was there I don't remember The Godfather Two as well as I do the first one. And then of course there's the Godfather three. I'm gonna talk you into it. Okay. But was there the same level of religious symbolism in the Godfather part two? The I don't seem to recall it as much. I do remember that one the one climactic scene and I can't think of a character's name who uh he commits suicide in the bathtub, like the ancient Romans?
2: Oh, Frankie Pantangeli. Thank
0: you, Pantangeli. That's right, that's right. The thing that I noticed the most about The Godfather Part Two is that there seemed to be a lot more references to classical Greek and right. ancient Romans. And so. th-
2: that's a case in point, Frankie Pantangeli's mm-hmm. suicide. Yeah, but yeah. that scene
0: in particular really like stood. It stands out to this yeah, day. Yeah, well, it
2: stands. It's the horse's head of Godfather Part II. No
0: kidding, right? Yeah, so... And then in the Godfather Part Three, you know the, the the religious symbolism. I mean, it, it's like full on in your face. It's Michael basically trying to get back in good with the Catholic Church. You and know, the
2: Catholic Church by this time is corrupt. Is the,
0: more corrupt than him, it's, right? If, if such a thing is possible. So yeah. Well, they
2: carry out a hit, right? They they murder the Pope.
0: Yes, they do. And and he you know he finds out about it, and he's able to. I, what does he do? He 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 tries to warn the Pope, and and obviously it's not successful. Uh, I thought, I also thought that was a really interesting uh, way that they uh, interjected actual true history yes. into that movie because there is still a lot of uh, a lot of uh, controversy about the way uh, John so, Paul I died, the First you died. Know? September
2: and, Pope. Yes.
0: Yes. yes. We, what he was in yes. office, thirty days.
2: Yeah.
0: I don't know if you call it being in office, but you know what I mean. Yes,
2: he was Pope for yeah. somewhere around thirty. I don't yeah, know the exact. The amount, September
0: but, Pope. I hadn't realized that, so um, it really is interesting.
2: And in God Ga- at the. end, uh, uh back in the 70s Mm -hmm. early 80s there there was this television series called the godfather saga oh i never
0: heard
2: of it where they did a lot you're way
0: older than me anyway
2: oh (laughs) i'm well way older than most people i know when i was in school we didn't have history
0: you had what it was
2: everything was current events (laughs) (laughs) how old are you again (laughs) anyway and in that series, it was a miniseries, it was The Godfather, but they included a bunch of clips that, you know, had ended up on the cutting room floor. Oh, very cool. And I don't know if you recall the very, the very closing to the book is Kay Adams going to, to church. I do. She's getting ready for confession. And there's that really powerful line. She entered her soul and said the necessary prayers for the sins of Michael Corleone. Mm-hmm. I found that really beautiful and so in the godfather saga uh they actually show diane keaton with her mantilla and and making the sign of the cross mm-hmm. and you know she, she she was a protestant
0: yeah i was gonna say she was not a she was not a catholic
2: well she converted i know but that's the marriage between puritan sensibilities and this new world corruption
0: yeah, it was an it was an interesting juxtaposition, and then in the third, by the th- time the third film comes around, you know, she and Michael obviously have already been divorced right. for a while. Their kids are grown up, and so she's gone the complete opposite. She's actually married to a federal judge, so talk about going from one extreme to another. How how so? <laughs> ah, very funny.
2: Well, well, they're, they're, well, there is they're, <laughs> they're, they're
0: corrupt as anyone. There's else, I that get line it.
2: in Godfather too, where um, Michael tells the senator. Mm-hmm. We're both part of the same hypocrisy. I remember,
0: yep when he's te- when he's testifying before that subcommittee. No, no, this is
2: the beginning when.
0: Oh, that's right when they're having the party at his when house they're, when
2: they're having the first communion. That's right, which was exactly like my first communion.
0: Oh, really? Was it really? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: You had a band and dancers <laughs> and. Speed boats on Lake Tahoe. I was gonna say, you know,
0: free flowing <laughs> food and booze. You know, mine was like that too. The bonfire that, that it, right? lasted into exactly, the night. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. Was your uh, was your wedding like the wedding in the Godfather, the first the film, the opening scene where? You know, yeah, yeah eight exactly. brides, bridesmaids in hideous peach colored dresses and yes. One of them was, you know, getting banged upstairs by Sunny. Yeah. That's
2: Lucy Mancini.
0: I know. And and Lucy Mancini and Sonny got together and she got she gave birth to Vincent Mancini, who was
2: the playing hero. in the
0: Godfather three. And oh my God, was he gorgeous. See yeah. that's the reason to watch The Godfather Three, if nothing else. I he, mean, he
2: never blew my dress up.
0: Well, gee, okay, wait. Apollonia. Well, yeah, but you know, she does make an appearance in a memory in The Godfather Part Three, so I can oh. understand that. But I mean, you know, you also get full frontal nudity in the first film. I mean, I'm sure that blew your dress off for that. Oh, right? that, that
2: was that was that was memorable.
0: I, yeah, I'm sure it was. That
2: was memorable.
0: <laughs> I think any uh, any female full frontal nudity would be memorable to you, right? Oh.
2: <laughs> when I was a kid.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. That's hilarious. So, you know, you were talking earlier about the the whole romance and the love story aspect of it. Uh, I I liked Apollonia's character, but I always felt so bad for Kay. She just seemed to get the short shrift. I mean, throughout the entire oh, yeah. trilogy. Oh, yeah. You know, the poor woman, you know, she loves this guy, and you know, and then he goes off to Sicily, marries some other woman, doesn't even tell her. How do you know that? Well, he... No, he does, doesn't he, in the book? Doesn't he write to her? In the her book, her? I think
2: tells yeah, it, he tells her. Yeah, he writes
0: her a letter because he can't call her. Um
2: can text her.
0: Right? You know, what was up with that?
2: I think he posted on Facebook.
0: Right? Social media, man, I tell you. Kay Adams, I love you, but I'm married to another woman. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. So she, I thought, had one of the more interesting character uh, arcs in the entire series. You know, if you think about it, she goes and, it, and in, a, in a way it sort of is representative of those the sacraments we're talking about you know she goes from being very young and kind of naive and goes through this you know process with Michael and this evolution of, of who she is in their relationship and she really sort of grows up
2: yeah with she grows him. up yeah, yeah that's true
0: mm-hmm. she goes through and she
2: defines herself because she's yep if you, if you just look at the way she dresses mm-hmm. throughout the film, you see this evolution from this person who doesn't know who she is. She's got the weird hair, she's got the bright colors, usually orange. Yes. Which is really symbolic in The Godfather. And then she becomes more like them and she mm-hmm. dresses like them, at least in the same colors. Yes. And then as she starts to make her exit from the family, she's back to orange again.
0: Yeah. And then you, you see that in particular, speaking of, you know, color theory and films and things like that. I mean you very much see that pull up, you know symbolism of color throughout the whole film i mean right. the first film the first film and the second film the third film in particular they reminded me so much of each other because they have such a similar color palette no oh, yeah. they have the yeah. darks but then they have the like you were talking about the oranges and the symbolism of the you know there's a lot of like very sumptuous colors like jewel tones golds and and crimsons and blacks and things like that um and you know and then Orange, in particular, I always remember the scene where uh, Vito actually dies. You know, he's chasing, he's chasing little uh, Michael in the garden, and he's scaring him with that orange in his mouth. Remember? But yeah. It's rem- reminiscent of the scene where he gets shot in the street. Remember, he's looking for oranges.
2: Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And then uh, at the at the wedding scene, Tessio, mm-hmm. who is the Judas
1: mm-hmm.
2: of the of this of the story, is tossing is sitting at a table, tossing an orange up and down. Mm-hmm. And then in Godfather 2 when they're planning the hit on Hyman Roth mm-hmm. Michael is peeling a, an orange with his teeth.
0: Yes. And in the Godfather Part 3 when he goes to meet uh, the new pope Pope John Paul the 1st who's still a cardinal at that point he hadn't been elected um, he has a diabetic attack and they bring him a big pitcher of orange, orange juice, juice and with yeah. oranges it's I thought it was very interesting as well so it's, it's like, it seems like it's a color like alluding to some sort of a a crisis.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, Uh, that's the way I see it. Um, In The Godfather II, Michael comes home from Cuba after Fidel Castro has taken over. And he walks into his house and nobody knows he's there and he opens the door to his bedroom and there's Kay Adams at the sewing machine sewing an orange dress. Mm
0: -hmm. I remember, yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I remembered it now when you brought it up to me, so yeah.
2: But uh, Kay Adam- Adams is also, to me, also symbolizes the, uh, the sexism of the book.
1: Mm-hmm. It's
2: a fundamentally sexist book. The famous horse uh, horse's head scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the fa- what happens in the famous horse's head scene is Woolf wakes up in his bed uh, that morning, and there's a little bit of blood and then he pulls back the covers, there's a little bit more blood, pulls back more covers, and he's drenched in blood. He's mm-hmm. swimming in blood. This is this is an image of a little girl having her first period and mm-hmm. not being prepared for it. Mm-hmm. So it's they're clearly feminizing, feminizing him. And at the wedding, when Vito meets with Johnny Fontaine,
1: mm-hmm.
2: he says, I, I might have the scene wrong. But he says, women and children can be careless, but not men. Mm -hmm. So women are in a different category. Mm -hmm. And then when Mike, there's this wonderful scene, this wonderful scene when Michael and Kay are out and they've just seen the Bells in St. Mary's Mm -hmm. and they're walking down the street in Manhattan and the screen goes blank for a split second and Kay says, Michael, when you can see them again, she says, Michael, look at this. And she shows it, shows in this newspaper headline that says Vito might be dead. Michael runs across the street to a telephone booth and he closes the door on Kate.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And he calls Sonny. And then this is, this is relived in The Godfather 2. Yep. When, when Kay comes to visit her children. At the
0: very end. And he closes the door in he her face. Just the door on her. Yeah. Oh
2: God. Heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, she really got. I'm telling you, she got the short short shrift through that entire
2: throughout the movie
0: the entire series. You know that she she's she's one of my favorite characters in the entire you know entire Godfather universe. Oh yeah. I I just really like her. I mean, she's sort of like the, the voice of reason, the voice of Michael's conscien- conscious conscience conscience. Conscience. Yeah. I can't talk. Um. Yeah. And in in a way, she sort of like I think represented his like sort of attempt to like get in get not stay out of the, the world of, of you know the mafia and the corruption and it, it never seems to work and you know and yet he always finds himself drawn back to her so it's kind of symbolic of him you know getting in, in very inculcated into his life but also always trying to sort of reach for she's sort of like the you know that fruit that's just beyond his reach, you know, his redemption in a way. Oh well, yeah. She's very much his redemption. Yeah, at the
2: beginning of Godfather II, when they're dancing, she's, she reminds him, you told me five years ago, no, you told me a while ago that in five years, your business will be completely legitimate. Mm-hmm. And she reminds him, you're falling short. Mm-hmm. And then she shows real courage after the after the Senate trial when she says, "I'm taking the children, and we're not going back to, we're not going back to Nevada. I'm going to Vermont." That took real courage.
0: Yes, because knowing what her husband was and how ruthless he was, I mean, he could have easily turned around and killed her. I suppose the one redeeming thing about Michael is that he did, he does love his family, and I think he always loved Kay. And um, and wow. then the irony of that in the in the third film is that he has gone. At that point, completely legitimate. Right. And she wants nothing to do with him. She, you know, she tells him flat out at uh, at the ceremony when he gets the award from the Pope. And she tells him, you know, you're, you're, now that you should, what does she say? Now that you're respectable, you're more dangerous than you ever were.
1: Yeah.
0: And she said, I preferred you when you were a common mafia hood. But the way she <laughs> says it, just with such contempt in her voice, I was like, yes, Kate. Well, she's, she
2: she's a good actress.
0: Yeah, she's a wonderful actress. She's definitely one of my favorites. So, yeah, I, I, I really liked her character the most. And you know, and, and and speaking of women, I mean through women throughout the whole like and then sexism you were talking about. I mean, just the way women in general are sort of portrayed throughout the, the series and you know, even into the the third film, you know, they're they're very kind of one sided, they're very one dimensional. She's no, probably yeah. the one that has the most
1: she has depth, depth. as a female Absolutely. character, but
0: I mean Connie, you Connie's kind of another interesting one though. You know, we meet Connie in the first book you know the book and then the first movie at her wedding and you can tell she's young and she's very spoiled you know getting her own way and uh her husband sure uh (laughs) sure knocked that out of her and then in the second film you know when he's dead at that point and she's sort of become this like bimbo in a way yeah, Yeah, and then in the third film, she's sort of become like the family matriarch, so it's like, you know, maiden mother crone kind of symbolism. I thought well, that was interesting. Well, she
2: makes that transition to mm-hmm. Godfather too. Mm-hmm. She's she's the bimbo. Well, by the end of the movie, she's the closest thing they have to a matriarch.
0: Yeah, yeah, because yeah. the mom dies. And then, yeah, and then in the third film, you know, you see her, the symbolism, she's always wearing black. Right. She's always, you know, yeah, she's always lady. cooking. Yeah, she is, maiden mother crone. That's another, yeah. um, Interesting symbolism, but you know, and then even, um, you know, Apollonia was, you know, very kind of cardboard cut out, you know, that she was like the, you know, the K and and Apollonia were sort of like the Madonna whore. Yeah. Kind of symbolism there. Well,
2: not, no, I disagree. I'm
0: using, well, okay, why do you disagree?
2: Because there's no way you could call Apollonia a whore.
0: I don't mean it like that. I don't mean, I don't mean that she's a whore. I mean, the general, I'm thinking, I'm speaking in general terms. You know, she's very, like, she's obviously very sexual. You know, Kay, you never see them, you know, make love. You know, Kay is yeah. always sort of repressed in a way.
2: Well, she's a Puritan. That's, yes. She, so, she represents a Puritan yeah. influence on America. If there is a whore, symbol, I, I don't like calling them No, names. I don't
0: like that word either. But
2: uh, but if there is a image of sexuality, it is Lucy Mancini. In one scene, Sonny is having an Well, Sonny's having an affair with her, and he's Mm -hmm. visiting her at her apartment. I remember. And he comes out, and he says, we got to go pick up my sister. Mm -hmm. But she's there in her slip, and she looks directly at the camera, and for a split second, you get this look. Oh, I love this man, but what the hell have I gotten myself into? Right? And it's all over her face, and I just think that's such a beautifully acted moment. Mm -hmm. It really captures everything
0: in an entire movie of beautifully acted moments.
2: There's some bad performances.
0: Well, I mean, you could say there's bad performances in all three of the films. Yes, and and, and, you know, know, the one that people always pick on the most, and it's uh, Sophia Coppola and Godfather Part Three. Yeah, she was not the greatest actress in the world. No, she she, she's not, you know, that was a weak performance. I mean, and, you know, and, and a lot of people, I think, downgrade the film for that reason. If, if you can put her performance aside and really watch that film again, it really is a beautiful film. Okay. It's not it's not the masterpiece that The Godfather 1 and The Godfather 2 are. It really is not. I, I get that. But it has a beautiful charm all its own. There's very strong uh, them- thematic images. It's very, um, very King Lear. Very lot, a lot of yeah. familiar images and themes, you know, especially the the, the theme of the father losing his child. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, you know, losing his ultimate chance of redemption because, you know, in that film, he makes a vow to God that, you know, if, if you know, I'll give, I'll give up this life, I'm not going to sin anymore, and I swear on the lives of my children, and you're like, oh, oh, that ain't good. And then he gives the order to Vincent to finalize this hit. Yeah. And he basically, you know, that's sort of like his last hurrah because right there, you know, he's it's like, it's, you know, you're going back into that life, Michael, but it's a, it's a beautiful movie. And, you know, and speaking of love stories, I, you know, Andy Garcia's character gets involved with, you know, Sofia Coppola's character and yes, they're cousins, you know, as we say here in New Mexico, con la prima." but I'm sorry if Andy Garcia was my cousin,
2: <laughs> okay. let's just
0: say we'd be very close. <laughs>
2: well, yeah. I'll leave that up to you and Andy Garcia. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
2: His last name is Garcia.
0: I know, right? Well, he, he's he's one of us, man. He's one of us. He's one of our people. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing that I thought was interesting is, is and I think that elevates the, the film over the book, is the fact that there's so many great lines in The Godfather of Part Three, but all of them, all of them have all really them good lines.
2: Great lines. Yeah. Keep your friends close, but your enemies Enemy's closer. closer. Uh, one of my favorite lines, comes from Godfather 2, where Hyman Rostin gives that speech about Mo Green. The man, town he invented was Las Vegas. You go there today, there's not a signpost, there's not a statue, there's not a plaque. He was a great man. And I realized, I didn't realize until I heard I heard Hyman Rostin say that, but yeah, he was a great man. He was a great man. And it, and it only took me 47 times watching Godfather Part Two to realize, Godfather Part Two is all about Hyman Rothstein getting revenge on Michael for killing Mo Green.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I never I never realized that.
0: Yeah, it kind of comes to you a little later, a little later on. It's interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't actually catch that the first 30 times I watched it myself. Yeah. So yeah. But that's what's cool about that 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 trilogy is that you always do pick up something new every time you watch it. At right. least I do. Some little nuance that you didn't catch the first, you know, 38 times that you watched it and you're like, ha, 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 I get it. Like, oh, like we were talking about the color. Yeah. You know, I just rewatched the trilogy getting ready for this podcast and I only just noticed the whole orange theme like we were talking about. Just recently, you know, when you, orange is in a certain scene, you know, some shit's going to hit the fan. Yeah. Yeah. So.
2: Yeah. And, um, there's something else I was going to tell you, but I forgot it.
0: Well, you know, it'll come, it'll come back to you. It'll
2: come back to me, or it won't. You know, it had to do with Mo Grain.
0: Okay, that's okay. okay. Just you know, interject if it if it, if it comes back to you. So. Okay, well. <laughs> so we've covered all the aspects of The Godfather that are, in my mind, the most standout themes. We've covered, you know, religion, covered crime. We covered uh, love, relationships, marriage, uh, the colors, and then you know, since my podcast is about food, there's a lot of good food in the book. There's a lot, of, except
2: and, for the cannoli. Well, leave the gun.
1: Take the cannoli.
0: So there's a lot of good food in the godfather in general i mean there's that wedding feast in the beginning of the first movie all those oh those wonderful all those wonderful foods that are laid out um lots of wine drinking you know my favorite thing
2: wine drinking is Uh, good and
0: then there's the scene where what's his name uh not is it clemenza
2: depends on what scene you're talking about the
0: scene where michael is learning how to make the meatballs
2: i was going to mention that okay that's such an important scene Mm -hmm. because well the name of the theme, the name of the films are the godfather yes and who is your godfather the godfather is, is the... that like
0: the question who's your daddy
2: no it's not the same <laughs> question i don't know why your mind went there
1: but... uh, not mine
2: <laughs> okay uh who is your god who is your godfather your godfather is the person that baptizes you mm-hmm. and gives you a new name and In that scene, what Clemenza is doing is he's showing Mike, Mike, how to make spaghetti sauce. Meatballs. No, it's spaghetti sauce. No,
0: it's meatballs. He puts the meatballs in the spaghetti sauce.
2: And he puts sugar and he puts wine in the spaghetti sauce. I remember. So he's making spaghetti sauce. Yes. But the scene. I'm going to
0: argue with you on this one. He's making meatballs and he's just putting them into a tomato sauce and he never calls it spaghetti sauce. I remember he tells well, me. Just because he in doesn't call tomatoes, it spaghetti sauce, I paste, it's not spaghetti sauce. You fry the tomato paste so it doesn't stick. Remember? Right. You fry your garlic. And some onions. Yes, and you fry and your put garlic. Put in some sugar. and That's my yes. secret. And then you pour in. And then you pour in the garlic. And then you put in the meatballs.
2: And you shove in your sausage and your meatballs. Yes. Okay. In any case. Anyway. What he's saying that the scene begins with Michael sitting out in the courtyard by himself mm-hmm. in his overcoat, and Clemenza yells out, "Hey, Mikey! Mikey!" <laughs> you want it on the phone? Who is it? Oh, some girl.
0: And, and it's Kay. And, she and said, it's Kay. Tell me you love me, Michael. I
2: remember. Okay, I'll, we'll talk later. Okay, bye. <laughs> and then Clemenza says, "Why didn't you tell that nice girl you loved her?" I I love you with all of my heart. I if, my I if I don't see you soon, I'm gonna die. Hey, Mikey, come over here. <laughs> you learn something. Who knows? You might have to work for cook you for might twenty have, guys. Quick, cook for twenty guys someday. Okay. That scene sets up the very final scene of the movie, the final word spoken in the movie. When Clemenza takes Mike's hand, kisses his ring, and says Don Mm -hmm. Corleone. He's gone from Mikey to Don Corleone in the eyes of Clemenza. So Clemenza is Michael's godfather. Yes. Hence the name The Godfather. Godfather. Yep. I feel like Quentin Tarantino at the beginning of Reservoir Dogs. What do you mean? When... Are you familiar with Reservoir Dogs? Yeah,
0: but I haven't seen it in, in ages.
2: Um, they're discussing Like a Virgin. Oh, yes, I remember now. I mean, he, he walks, everybody, walks all these gangsters through this argument and says, hence, Like a Virgin.
0: <laughs> that's an, uh, it's an interesting connection. I had never made that, but yeah, that's a good one. So, yeah, that's, a, that's, that's probably one of my favorite food. Food scenes in an entire, in, in any movie is, is that scene where, where they're making meat when they're making meatballs, not spaghetti sauce. And well, argue with you.
2: He's not making meatballs.
0: Yes, they are.
2: Not they. Clemenza is okay, making fine. spaghetti sauce. He's trying sauce. to teach my, he's... <sighs> You don't put sugar in meatballs.
0: Okay, but he's telling him to put the meatballs in the sauce, So he's obviously cooking meatballs. Hey, I cook. Okay, I'm. A, I have, a, I have a cooking. I cook too. And I have a cooking blog.
2: I I cook, too. Mm. If
0: you say so. Anyway. (laughs) And then the other food scene that I remember, going back to Godfather Part Three again, your favorite, it's when uh, Vincent is teaching Mary how to make the gnocchi in his kitchen. And it's kind of like, it's not reminiscent of the scene where uh, Clemenza is teaching Michael how to make meatballs. (laughs) In a sort of way it is, because, you know, it's, it's, you know, like sort of the older... You know, more experienced, you know, mobster kind of teaching the younger, more innocent person, you know, how to cook and stuff like that. Of course, you know, Vincent and Mary. <laughs> we, we all know what happens in that scene. That's it's, a very romantic scene, though. Speaking of romance, like well, I, it, I still remember seeing it. and I was like,
2: it's reminiscent of Girl with a Pearl Earring, which Scarlett Johansson.
0: I remember, yeah, when she. When well, they're mixing yeah. paints. Uh huh. Whoa! I know, right? I
2: needed a cold shower after that scene.
0: <laughs> well was so great about the scene in godfather part three with vincent and mary is you know you don't see any nudity you don't see any sex but it is hot man like he's got his hand over hers and they're rolling the gnocchi and then he he holds her hand and oh man i was like i sometimes think that that might have been the origin of why i I learned how to cook in (laughs) life because i so badly wanted some gorgeous man to come up behind me and teach me how to make gnocchi and then sweep me off into his arms and take me and make love to me so you know hasn't yeah. happened yet but
2: hey there's always hope
0: right you know hope springs eternal yes. <laughs> but the the one the one food scene that always stuck out to me both in the book and in the movie is the scene where um it's that awful scene where uh carlo beats up connie right and she's making um veal and uh peppers and yeah it's pretty awful both in the book and in the film so especially
2: the way you know with the way we get veal.
0: Well, okay, yeah, that's true. But yeah, and I'm sure back then it was, you know, even less humane than it is now. So yeah, that, that, that scene always stood out to me, so.
2: I'm not hungry yet, he said. Still reading the racing form. It's on the table, Connie says stubbornly. Stick it up your ass, Carlo said. He drunk off the rest of the whiskey in the water glass, tilted the bottle to fill it again. He paid no more attention to her. Connie went into the kitchen, picked up the plates filled with food, and smashed them. The loud crashes brought Carlo in from the bedroom. He looked at the greasy veal and the peppers splattered all over the kitchen walls, and his finicky neatness was outraged. You filthy, guinea-spoiled brat. Clean it up right now or kick the shit out of you.
0: It really is a terrible scene, both in the book and in the film but it did start me thinking about veal, particularly after the conversation Eddie Tafoya and I had about it. When I decided to make the dish, I realized I had actually never made veal before and never made something called veal saltimbocca. And this seemed like an excellent way to honor the Corleone family. The method that I use comes from the legendary Anna Del Conte's book, Gastronomy of Italy, which in my opinion is like the Bible of contemporary Italian cooking. Her method does involve making the veal into little rolls, or involtini, so probably in Italian you would want to refer to them as vitello involtino. So here we go, vitello involtino it is. You will need 10 thin veal cutlets, preferably organic and humanely raised, 10 slices of prosciutto, 10 fresh sage leaves, a half a cup of flour for dusting the veal, salt and pepper to taste, about two tablespoons of olive oil, two tablespoons of unsalted butter, and a half a cup of dry white wine. And this is what you do. You want to start out by laying your veal cutlets on a flat surface, and then you put a strip of prosciutto and one sage leaf atop each piece of meat. Roll up each veal cutlet and secure it with a toothpick so that it holds its shape. Next, you want to mix the salt and pepper into the flour and dredge each veal roll in the seasoned flour. And in a heavy skillet, preferably cast iron, heat up your olive oil and melt the butter in it. And when it is hot and bubbly, add in five of the veal rolls, browning on each side. I estimate it was roughly five minutes per side. Don't crowd the frying pan, though, because they won't brown and your lovely $25 veal cutlets will have gone to waste. I don't know about you, but I'm way too cheap to want that. So, oh, when the rolls have been browned, take them out of the still hot pan and pour in the white wine, whisking and letting it bubble until it thickens into a wonderful, lovely syrupy reduction. It takes about 10 minutes. Don't leave it because it could burn. Then you want to pour that nice, wonderful sauce over those veal rolls. The smell is absolutely amazing. Et voila! Veal saltimbocca or vitello in voltini, since they are rolled. Whatever. They are absolutely mouthwateringly delicious. Now, if you want to recreate the meal that's in the book, you can serve the, these little veal rolls with some wonderful, lovely buttery polenta and roasted red peppers, and there you go. You have veal and peppers. Just don't throw them across the room the way Connie Corleone did. You never know who might be there to kick the shit out of you if you do. Well, that is it. We've come to the end of another episode, beginning season two of the Cooking the Books podcast. This was a lot of fun. I want to thank very sincerely Dr. Eddie Tafoya for being a guest and for letting me talk as much as I did. I realized he was supposed to be the guest, but I think I was just so excited to finally have somebody to talk to about this movie that I love as much as anyone else that I did dominate the conversation a bit. So everyone, please forgive me. Eddie, thank you again for being part of this podcast. Uh, definitely we will be inviting you back for future episodes. Again, I hope everybody is staying well out there. Um, I hope you stick with the podcast. I have some other really fun episodes coming up and some other great guests. And I just want to also remind you, if you enjoy this podcast, you might enjoy my blog, You can find it at www.foodinbooks.com. That's F-O-O-D-I-N-B-O-O-K-S.com. And you can like me on Facebook, which is facebook.com backslash foodinbooks. Or you can follow me on Instagram. Foodinbooks is my handle there. You all take care of yourself. And let's not find you sleeping with the fishes.
1: What the hell is this? That's a Sicilian message. It means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes.